Thank you for listening to this gospel resource from Cornerstone Baptist Church in Wiley, Texas. Feel free to use or share this resource, but we ask that you not alter the content in any way. For more information about Cornerstone Baptist Church, please visit us at cornerstonewiley.org. All right, so I, uh, I entitled this lesson, uh, Teenagers, colon, an end to parenting. Because I couldn't think of how else to title the, par- the, the lesson. And it's not that you have to know the title, it's just what I put on my, my notes. I don't even have to tell you that. But I thought it was rather ominous. Teenagers, an end to parenting. Sounds like a bad movie, but... If uh, if we're going to talk about teenagers, one of the, my one of my favorite comics, not my very favorite, but it's an enjoyable comic that you get a kind of a chuckle out of once in a while, and perhaps I identify with it because the main character in it is named Jeremy, and so I sort of have had an identity with Zitz, the the, the comic book comic strip Zitz, and the, I don't even people even read comics anymore. It's it's a sad day that we don't read comics. But if we're going to talk about teenagers, you have to have an obligatory reference to Zitz because it's all about the life of Jeremy the teenager in the house. And there are a couple ones here I put together. This one has three different boxes in it and it has Jeremy in the first box sighing, kind of hunched over on the, on the, on the couch. He's got kind of a sad look on his face. And then uh, the next column is just him up tight and there's clearly a tear coming off of him. He's trying to wipe his nose and sniffing all over the place. And then the last uh, box, it has him with his head in his mother's lap and his mom is saying, so does Rudolph still hit too close to home? And he says, yeah, it's high school with antlers. <laughs> this is uh, the next one. He says, um, and mom and, uh, and Jeremy are arguing with each other. And, and mom's yelling at Jeremy, you are not taking a cross-country road trip, Jeremy. He says, why not? You're only 16 years old. So, dad, a motorcycle to Montana, dad rode a motorcycle to Montana when he was 16. And dad says, there's good reason for that. Jeremy says, what? Because I was me and not you. Exactly, Mom says. <laughs> and the last one here is uh, Dad saying to Jeremy laying on the couch. Uh, Jeremy's laying on the couch sort of in typical teenager form, and Dad's hands in his pockets laying at, uh, saying to him, tough day? And he says, you wouldn't understand. Dad says, try me. And he pulls up a chair and sits down next to him. It's about being young. Dad says, well, I was young once. And, of course, Jeremy says, yeah, but... Weren't most of your problems steam, rela- steam engine related? <laughs> These are all good comics and they're all worth a good laugh. And I, I don't know how about most of us as parents, especially some of our younger parents, uh, I don't know that we think about parenting uh, at the outset. And there's probably a good reason for that. It's good that they come out small. Uh, it gives us time to kind of run into this idea of parenting and kind of get our, our, our feeding, footing underneath of us for all that. Uh, I think when we think about parenting books and parenting advice, we sort of default to pictures of babies on the cover, and the parenting is really geared towards that younger stage of parenting. And I suppose that's good. That's when parents are the most inexperienced, right? Your human life has been entrusted to your care for the first time, and you've barely had time to care for yourself, right? You've barely even learned how to do that part of parenting or of adulting. And for young parents, everything is new, everything is novel, and that's as intimidating as it is overwhelming. I remember sitting on the uh, hospital bed holding Jonathan, or he was in the little carrier thing, waiting to be discharged from the hospital. And they go through this entire checklist with you, right, before they discharge you from the hospital. And it's basically, uh, don't do this or he could die. Don't do this or he could die. If you do this, he will definitely die. Uh, and if you do this, he will die and you'll go to jail. And like that's the entire... And this overwhelming weight just settles on you in that moment that you've got this huge responsibility. 
and, and it's right that we put a lot of that stock, a lot of that weight in those early stages of parenting. It's, it's very foundational. We've talked a lot about that so far. So much of what we do in parenting of our little children is going to literally prepare them for the rest of their lives. I mean, it's really important that we get that right at the outset. But as we discussed last week, as our children age, our parenting has to adjust based upon their age and what they're experiencing and the newness that they're going through as well. We're still committed to parenting and shepherding the heart of our children at every stage of our parenting. That doesn't change, but our children become more capable of reasoning, which is both a blessing and a curse, that they can actually reason, we can reason with them, but then again, they can reason back with us as well, and that can be its own little challenge. And their understanding becomes more acute. They, they, they're not what they were as babies or as infants or even as toddlers. They, they understand things better. And so our parenting adjusts from sort of the control stage of, of infancy and up to toddlerhood, and then gets more into this um, uh, development section, that, that part we talked about last week in our class. The, the parenting journey really covers three Ds over its, its scope of, of its life. It begins in discipline, and then commits itself to the development of character, and I think it ends, it doesn't ever really end, but if it ends at some point, it ends in discipleship. So we go from discipline to development to discipleship over the course of our parenting journey. And, uh, it was interesting that, uh, rereading what Ted Tripp says about this stage of, of parenting as we transition them into adulthood, ideally into their own marriage and their own family. Uh, you know, the, the, the parenting relationship does end. Uh, it's, it's a different parenting after they're adults and into, into their own families. But the marriage relationship is the only one in the scriptures that is permanent. And this parenting relationship changes. But the marital relationship does not. I, th I thought that was kind of an interesting thing to ponder upon. So, look, we, we've discussed again that our job early on in parenting is to exercise our authority over our children so that they can properly understand to whom their duty of obedience is owed. But as they learn to render that obedience, they are then able to receive the influence of their parents, or at least they should be receiving that influence from their parents. They recognize the source of wisdom that has been their source of authority in their parents. And our parenting becomes something our children may rely upon to grow in character, not just in physical strength or ability. But then they become teenagers. The, uh, well, everything kicks in. The hormones kick in. The dialectic becomes very strong in them. They become, or at least they appear to become, suddenly rebellious, anxious, and insecure. And it's just kind of the nature of that stage of life. The, the world has blown this section of life way out of proportion, though. But then again, why would we be surprised at this, right? Uh, the foundation the world has laid in parenting along the way, as we've talked about a lot in this class, has been to try to address behavior. And it's sort of like parenting whack-a-mole. They've spent 12 or 13 years trying to corral behavior. One will pop up, they'll knock that one down, and a different behavior will arise. And they've, they've never really dealt with the heart of parenting. And so they've spent 12 or 13 years trying to perfect the behavior and never quite been able to land that behavior. And so naturally, when their children hit puberty, these parents are exhausted. It's hard to play whack-a-mole for 13 years of a child's life. And now they have to, in addition to all the work they've already done trying to correct the behavior, they actually have to now confront that behavior with someone who is nearly equal in their size, who is a temperament that is at least rivaling their own, and then certainly exceeds them in hormone levels. So the, the rationality is not going to always be there, at least on, a, on an even keel. 
And the parents that are concerned only with behavior who have not invested in the hard labor of getting to the heart of, of, of that behavior, into that, that heart of, of the child, they're going to find themselves unable to exert the authority over their children. And without that bond of trust that has been built over the years, that's going to, not going to permit them to provide any sort of influence into their kids. So the hard work of parenting is done on the front end of the parenting. It's not, not exhaustive. And if we haven't done that hard work, it's, it's, there's still time to be able to produce some of that. But it's going to be hard. If all we've done is to focus on the symptoms of the behavior and not getting to that heart issue that our children have, uh, the teenage years is going to be very difficult. And this is really something we should ponder, and all of us should ponder as we shift to thinking through these teenage years. If you haven't put the time in shepherding the heart of your children, at the young age, it's going to be exceedingly difficult now as you go into the teen years to shepherd them effectively and accordingly. It's really hard work. And my advice to young parents, as I started this class and reminding all of us as parents, this parenting thing ain't for sissies. It's not a simple process. If you put the good work in early, it will pay off later on. If you don't do that good work early, it's going to be much more difficult. As my parents used to say, to us, uh, you're either going to parent when they're young or you're going to parent when they're old. You're going to have to parent one way or another. It's better to put it in when they're, they're young. So stop and ponder that. This is a good time, especially as young parents, to sit down and evaluate this. Are you committed to doing the hard work of getting to your child's heart? Or are you chasing around their behavior? Uh, and this is a good thing to come back to often and honestly. If you, if you come late to this, what honest changes must you as parents make? We, we've been talking through these biblical calls to parenting for weeks now. This is week 12 that we've been doing this. It may be time for us to consider in our own parenting that we've got to re-examine where we're at, especially as we're about to or right in the midst of that teenage years. If, if this is sort of been an adjustment for us. We've got to sit down with our, our parent, our co-parent, our spouse, and talk about these things. There, there may be a need for us to confess that, hey, we've missed the mark on this, so we've got to realign ourselves. That, that's really difficult. It's, it's hard to admit that we've done something wrong anytime, but especially if it comes down to parenting. But if we're not following the model of parenting that God has outlined for us, it's not too late to start that now. And there's going to be great benefits to us to sit down with our spouse, with our kids, and say, we've not done this correctly. Here's what we're going to do to change it. And here's what we're going to go do, going, to do going forward, trusting that what God has outlined for us in parenting is worth the pain that it's going to cause in the temporary part of our lives. So your kids are worth it. Sit down as a family. Share with your kids the honest convictions that you've come to. If, if you've had those convictions come up, and let them know that you failed to live up to God's standard in parenting, but you want to see uh, the promises that God has made to you in parenting come true in your lives. The model that behavior and what it means to repent and pursue right behavior. This is good for us. Announce those new changes that you're committed to making and acknowledge how different that's, that might be. Even if it's overwhelming, it's going to be worthwhile because that's what God has ordained it to be. So that's, that's just one thing to sort of think about. Let's get deeper now into the, the issue of parenting in the teen years. If you have laid that foundation in the early years of parenting by shepherding your child's heart, then parenting the teen years really is merely an extension of what you've already been doing. Uh, you've, pra you've been practiced in this. And it's just like someone who has put in the time to become an athlete of any sort or, or practice a skill of any kind, 
it's going to be routine for you now. It's going to come out of you easily. If you've been putting in the hard work early on, what you've been doing of getting behind the behavior that you're seeing in front of you that morning is, is going to be uh, simple to get behind that and find out, okay, what is the thing that's actually exerting itself? What, what is motivating this behavior? What's down behind that? And so now, rather than having to simply control their behavior like they did when they were young or, or setting out certain goals for your kids, identifying character traits you want to have, now you're in the teen years able to get behind them with someone who actually is capable of reasoning with you and able to connect the dots between A, behavior, and B, heart motivation leading to that behavior. This is a great time. Uh, the, the character of the heart of your teen hasn't changed since birth. It's still the same thing. It's still the same heart. And your heart shares the same sort of proclivities towards sin. The natural tendencies of the heart are not altered by the phase of puberty. It's still the same stony heart that, that is uh, naturally tending away from things of righteousness. It is now how the heart is manifested and tempted that changes along with what we hope and pray that uh, we will see in terms of harvest, given the seeds that we've been sowing for the past 12 or 13 years, or however long it's taken us to get to this point of what we're going to call a teenager. If we've been sowing into our kids these great truthful principles, we hope to see a yield of that by this point in our kids as well. Now, there's no guarantee of that, of course, but ideally, if we've been doing the right things with parenting, if we've been getting to that hard issue, if we've been sowing into them the principles of the truth of Scripture, uh, that's not going to return void. And this is when we're going to start seeing some of that return on that. So the, the teen years are undeniably different than all the other years of parenting. Uh, they're transitioning from child to adulthood uh, at one point, And it's almost like a given day. At one point, there are still little boys and girls, but in a body that is more like a man or a woman. And it's almost like there's a switch that turns on. And they're, they've gone from this little kid to this uh, bloody, uh, 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 budding adult. They're, but they're at the same time during this whole process, and, and you know this, either having seen your own teens or having been one yourself, they're fundamentally unsure about themselves. Uh, their appearance is something that is not clear to them. Uh, they don't know where they fit, even in terms of the social structure anymore, because they're not part of the elementary process, but they're not still quite in the adult classes yet. They don't, they don't know where they're supposed to put themselves categorically. There's no real good fit for them in that. And more critically, they're unsure of what they believe. They're unsure of what they believe. They're unsure of why they would believe it and whether they believe what they do believe because they've been taught to believe it or because mom and dad taught them and told them they have to believe it. There, there's a lot of uncertainty in this time of teenage years. And if there's un, one word that would uh, sum the entire period up, it might be the word insecurity. They're just not quite sure and they're not confident of how to navigate the universe around them. But at the same time, teens are not without their charm. In fact, there's a lot of charm in our teens, right? Uh, this can, and it really should be a sweet time of parenting. And I really pray it is for you. And I, I think, again, the world has really blown these teen years out of proportion. We've got too many coming-of-age movies that sort of explain that these are rebellious, uh, hormone-driven, weirdo kids that should be locked in a closet and they turn 13 and come out when they're ready to enter the workforce. That's, that's the world's definition of a teen years. Uh, the Bible knows no definition like that. And, and it, it's good for us to remember that this is a sweet time for us to help our kids navigate the world around them and to transition from being a child into being a man or being a woman. 
So it's, it's sometimes hard to miss that rich time of the teen years that they provide because we've seen how easily it is to, to kind of coddle the shepherd hearts of, or shepherd the hearts of the little kids, right? It's, it's easier. We kind of get stuck in that mode. But don't forget to make that transition yourself into that. In, in this time of teenage years, we're less concerned with outright discipline. That's not abandoned. We're still getting into discipline. But there's a whole big difference between taking your six-year-old over your knee and taking your 16-year-old over your knee. They're, those are two wildly different things, and those need to be re-examined entirely. Right? So that there's a big difference there. We're less concerned with discipline. We're less concerned with discipline because we've done so much of it in the front of this whole process of parenting. If we've done all that hard work of discipline leading up to this, the teen years are less discipline, you do as I say, and more, let me help you think through this process. Are you sure this is what we should be doing? Harkening back to the disciplines we've already had. Reminding them of the lessons of their childhood. So it's much less concerned with discipline and much more concerned with providing them a Christian mind, teaching them what it means to be a Christian, helping them to think Christianly about the world around them, who they are in relationship to God, who they are in relationship to others. How do they view the world through the lens of Scripture? We're teaching them to think Christianly about what they encounter. And then we're helping them find their place. You know, they're, they're wandering around trying to figure out where they do belong. Uh, they have to figure out how they belong amongst their friends. Now this includes adults as well. Before, adults were sort of that other thing out there that you just sort of had to pay attention to and not run into in church. Now they're part of the relationships that are part of their lives. You've got to help them navigate those friends, and not just the adults, but also their peers. How do they navigate their peers? Which peers have they been navigating with? You have to help them find their place within the church. These are now no longer just simply passive recipients of the church process. Now they are actually members of the church. And when they turn 18, at least in this body, that's when we consider them for, for actual membership, voting membership, if you will, inside this church. They're a part of this church. Now they're, what does that mean for them? They've always been the, you know, the Sunday school kid or the, the VBS kid. They've been receiving all the aspects of the church that's not what church is meant to be. It's meant to be a part of us serving one another. And so how do they fit inside of that? They also have to find their place in a career. Uh, they're not going to always be able to, to, to mooch off of your good graces for the rest of their lives. They've got to go launch into adulthood. They've got to get out of mom and dad's house and go be their own adult. How do we shepherd them and kind of guide them in that career? That, that's very key for you as parenting. And they also have to then finally be a part of a new family. And you're going to help, have to help them transition to that point as well. That's not something I've had to experience quite yet in my, my parenting. But I'm desperately eager for it. I've told all my sons that they've got to bring me granddaughters. I don't have any daughters. So I'm eager to live through my, my granddaughters at some point in my life. And, and I'm, I'm excited that they want to be a part of a new family. My, my son and I were driving back last night from Houston talking a little bit about that, what it's going to look like in the future. And there's going to be a fundamental change in our relationships, and that should be. that They're a new family, and they're always going to be my son. But that parenting relationship is, is less me telling him what to do and when to do it, and now coming to the point of saying, do you need the advice? Let me know. Uh, and that I, I'm eager for those moments and for the grandkids that ideally will come from it as well. Uh, and any daughters that they introduce into the family, I guess we got to bring those daughters-in-laws in there in that mix as well. I didn't mean to overlook them. So if the transition to adulthood is what we're after in our parenting, then there are three areas, and I'm taking this from Ted Tripp, but I think they're, they're, they're wise points of, of us looking at. The three areas that we should focus our attention on 
Uh, and there are three things. I'll, I'll go through them each uh, more, more distinctly, of course, but here they are. Number one, we want to continue our attention on instilling the fear of the Lord in our kids. Number two, we want to uh, focus them on adhering to parental instruction. And number three, we want to help them disassociate from the wicked. Now, it's interesting. These are three aspects of us parenting teenagers, but aren't they just perfectly applicable at any stage of parenting and at any stage of our own personal life? We want to instill in them and in us the fear of the Lord. We want to remind them of the importance of adhering to parental instruction. And then finally, we want to encourage them to dissociate from the wicked. And we're going to look through a section of scripture in Proverbs. Uh, we've seen this before. If you want to take out your scriptures and turn to Proverbs 1, uh, this will be very familiar to, to us. And it should be familiar not only in this class, but just generally. This is a, a sort of famous passage of scripture. Uh, Solomon is setting up the entire purpose of the book. It's a book sort of addressed to his own sons, trying to impart his wisdom uh, to them or God's wisdom through him to his kids. Uh, so these are, are good uh, Proverbs for us. And this is sort of the, the opening thesis of the book of Proverbs. And, and in Proverbs 1, verse 7, he sets out the actual uh, thesis statement for the entire book of Proverbs. What is he trying to accomplish with this book? He sets out in this, this verse. We're going to look at Proverbs 1, 7 through 19. But we're going to take those in chunks. So I'll, I'm not going to read the whole thing up front. We'll read them verses at a time, uh, one and then two and then a several after that to kind of get through these three areas, of, again, of what we're driving at, of the fear of the Lord, adherence to parental instruction, and disassociation from the wicked. So look with me first at Proverbs 1, verse 7, and it says this, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. Fools despise wisdom and instruction. And, and there are whole sermons built around this one verse, and they're worth listening to, and you should spend some time either listening to them or doing the study on your own. There is richness in this entire, uh, this one sentence here. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge, but fools despise wisdom and instruction. What I want you to understand through this is what we're after here is instilling in our teens to fully understand, uh, to, to need to understand, and to fully appreciate what that means to be the fear of the Lord. That, that's, that's really what we've been driving at in terms of parenting our children's hearts, not just addressing their behavior. It's drawing them to understand their need for the Lord, that their heart is in rebellion to those principles, but that in fearing the Lord, you will gain wisdom and in, 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 in knowledge. It's the beginning of knowledge, it says. Ted Tripp says it this way. He says, living in fear of God means living in the realization of accountability to him. Uh, that means that we must instill in our sons and daughters a, a high view of God. This is something that is really missing throughout our entire society, uh, and even within the, the church society writ large. We've got a very low view of God. I remember in college, someone came to uh, chapel one year and, uh, and said a phrase that I, I don't know that I agreed with the rest of what he said, but this one phrase has stuck with me, and I think it's right. He says, remember, God ain't your buddy. God ain't your buddy. God is something other, and it's not undefined, but it's undefinable. He is something greater than we are. He ain't your buddy. He is the God of the universe. And if we've done our work to this point correctly, uh, what we've taught our kids since they were a baby, they should be in awe of God. And, and ideally, we've, we've walked along the way with them. We've gotten up in the morning with them. We've gone to bed at night with them and pointed them to the awe of this great, glorious God. The one that we sung in Sunday school was so big and so mighty that there's nothing my God cannot do. They ought to be in awe of that God by this point. 
in childlike awe, but that awe that they would have had as we pointed out the great sunsets that we see or, or the various things we've encountered in our lives, that awe ought to remain there, and they ought to now be able to appreciate with the developing mind that this big, this mighty God that was contained in that little rhyme that we would sing in the nursery is also a God who is holy, holy, holy. And it's our job in, in the teenage years to continue to point to that enormous God that is other. And it is good for them to have that understanding and that contrast between who they are and who he is. If we've invested time in being with our children to catch the moments, to show the awesome handiwork of God in creation, uh, or see it exercised within the family, teaching them the stories of the Bible, using the flannel graphs if we have to, if we've done all of those things, then your teen should be ready to grasp the holy omnipotence of, a God, of God, that the, the, the God that the train of his robe fills the temple, that is attended by angels of fire, that, that comes at one point to judge the living and the dead, and that he holds the heart of the king and effortlessly turns it like a river of water wherever he wills. It is time during these teen years to transition from my God is so big and so mighty and there's nothing my God cannot do, that sort of trite phrase that we have then to teach those important principles, to say, now look fully upon this great God. There's a reason why we have those little ditties when they're young. They're teaching deep theological truths. And if you're a parent of a young child, don't waste those moments on things that don't matter. Silly songs that are teaching your kid Something inane for the purpose of being inane? Don't do that. Find the things that are going to inculcate something that later on will connect with that big, holy, omnipotent God that they have to serve and come to understand. And it's not something that you can instill in your sons and daughters in just two or three hours on a Sunday morning or a Wednesday night. Although those are wonderful helps, these are great means of grace that you should avail yourself of. I encourage you to do so. I, we can teach an entire different course on ecclesiology. I think it's vital for you to be taking advantage of that, especially in your parenting years. But this is, a, this is a functional belief that has to be developed. It has to be built into your regular living. It's something that you've started. Remember Deuteronomy 6? It's something we've started when they were young, you know, parenting along the way and all that. That admonition of continuing that parenting along the way and as you go to bed and as you rise in the mornings, you sit around the house, that doesn't disappear at the first sign of a zit. Right? It continues to go on. Now, the, the, the process for that may become different. And you may have to take up a few things that you don't particularly love doing in order to attract that time with your kid. Uh, you know, I, I've spent a lot of time with my son who can far outrun me right now, having him slow down on trails when I am almost dead, asking me eternally consequential questions that I have to answer through heaves of breath. Not the way I want to have that. But those are the moments that they come to us. Seize those moments and create those moments that you can have them. Ideally, by this point, you've habituated the concept of teaching on the God that orders their lives all throughout childhood, pointing to God and the things that God as you go about your daily lives. So here is where much of that work pays off. As your teen moves from your care and control to the point of being a responsible adult, he or she must do so fearing more the God of the universe than the opinion of others. And it's your job to help them see the importance of that and balance those two things out. 
Solomon says that the foundation of wisdom and knowledge begins by rightly fearing, respecting, and holy honor, rightly fearing Yahweh the Lord. So as we shift from exerting our authority over our children, providing influence of our teens, we begin by keeping the fear of the Lord of primary importance to them. This is going to be central to their lives as adults. Second, Solomon tells us uh, that his purpose uh, in, in his book was to train Israel in understanding the fear of the Lord. And he points to the children of Israel and he points all of them and he points to us and to our children. He points to them where they may find this instruction that yields wisdom and knowledge. And he says this in verse 8 and 9 of Proverbs 1. He says, Hear, my son, your father's instruction, and forsake not your mother's teaching, for they are a graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. A graceful garland for your head and pendants for your neck. The, the promise to your teens, something their independent hearts will want to ignore or simply forget, is that their father's instruction, their mother's teaching, is of high reward. Now, we, we've talked about the great reward that, that comes to children who obey their parents, right? They have a long life in this earth and all that. This is, those are good. But, but, um, but, but Solomon is saying here there is a great reward due to the people, due, due to children who hear and forsake not the t- instruction and teaching of their father and mother. Matthew Henry puts it this way. Uh, he, uh, Solomon, takes it for granted that parents will, with all the wisdom they have, instruct their children, and with all the authority they have, give law to them for their good. They are reasonable creatures, the kids, and therefore must not give them law without instruction. We must draw them with the cords of a man, and, and when they, we tell them what they must do, and we must tell them why. We are instructing our children. Our, our teens are, are tempted at times to find wisdom from a different source. They may seek knowledge elsewhere, and they may be tempted to forget that the teaching and instruction given by their parents is akin to wearing a gold medal around their neck. They're going to read all kinds of things when they get to this age, but they're going to forget that the one thing that gives them the gold medal around their neck is their parents' instruction. They may not think that that's the case right now. What was it that Mark Twain said? The older I become, the wiser my father becomes. It's a remarkable thing. But this is true. And frankly, they will forget about this, but if you're not careful, you are going to also forget. Or perhaps you will fail to believe that your instruction, that your teaching to your children is to them a graceful garland for their head and a pendant around their neck. God has designed the parent-child relationship. This isn't something that was somehow invented by man. This was given to us by God. He designed it. And he intends for our children to see that their parents are a source for wisdom and instruction. And the contraposite of that is also true. The opposite of that is true. Not only does he, he, he designed it for the children to understand, our teens to understand, that parents are a source of wisdom and instruction for them, but you are, as a parent, to also know and believe and, uh, and appreciate that you, for your kids, are the primary source of wisdom and instruction for your teens. Yeah, there are other sources of wisdom and knowledge, most especially in the scriptures, but the immediate source of wisdom and instruction for them, for your kids, is you. You're the first stop to understanding wisdom and knowledge and instruction and appreciating fully the fear of the Lord. And that may mean that you need to learn something new or you may, uh, you may need to uh, uh, consider something that you have not considered. 
you may have considered some questions that are being asked of you by these teens in their search for wisdom and knowledge as you're trying to impart that to them. You may have thought that some of these questions are outrightly stupid and have uh, long since pushed them away from you because you just examined them and found them to be absolutely dumb, but they're encountering them now for the first time. And it's your job to say, yeah, that may be a stupid question, and here's how I've reasoned through the whole thing. Your, your job is, is to figure out how to impart that wisdom to your kids. They're trying desperately to figure these things out. The fact that they've even come to you to ask the question is delightful. Hopefully you're, you're uh, cultivating that opportunity but it may mean in order to get to those points that you've got to learn a new skill or a new way of thinking or a different way of communicating. It's a, it's a tough game to try to figure out where are my kids in this given moment. And as much as your children are taught to receive and, not, and forsake not the instruction of their parents, that means that you as parents must be ready, willing, and able to teach and to instruct. And don't miss the imperative that is here. Right? Solomon addresses his son and tells him to hear and to forsake. These are understood yous, if you remember that part of grammar. Right? This is the very beginning. This is an imperative sentence. You hear, you child, hear the instruction of your father. And then forsake not, kid, your mother's teaching. This is not optional language. There's no conditional language here. This is not a suggestion. This is a, an imperative, a declaration. Uh, if you want to sort of see the value, and I'm not sure that this analogy holds up too well, but you will understand my point, I think. Imagine it this way. If God had given the weight of gold in Fort Knox to your children, right, and told them that they must forsake not that great treasure, how earnestly might they embrace that? If they have all the riches of Midas at their disposal, and they're told, you forsake not those riches, do you think they're just going to be like tossing that aside? No. They're going to guard that. They're going to put more guards around Fort Knox to keep their gold safe because it's great treasure in there. Well, how much greater worth is the wisdom and knowledge to be gained by a parent's instruction? They may not know the riches that await them in that, but you do, or you should. We must impress upon our children that their best source of wisdom and knowledge is you, their parents, and in finding that source, they should hold to it very, very tightly. And what would keep our children from following that imperative? Well, Solomon provides that. He says the company of the wicked, in addition to instilling the fear of the Lord in our teens and reminding them that they should adhere to the source of wisdom, and that is their parents, we must also, third and finally, help them disassociate from the wicked. Let me read through verses 10 through 19 of Proverbs 1 very quickly. Pay attention to the pronouns in here, or the, the um, whether they're plural or singular, whatever that verbing is. Uh, Here's verse 10. My son, if sinners entice you, do not consent. If they say, come with us, let us let us lie in wait for blood. Let us ambush the innocent without reason. Like shield, let us swallow them alive and whole. Like those who go down to the pit, we shall find all precious goods. We shall fill our houses with plunder. Throw in your lot among us. We will have one purse. My son, do not walk in the way with them. Hold back your foot from their paths, for their feet run to evil, and they make haste to shed blood. For in vain as a net spread in the sight of any bird, but these men lie in wait for their own blood. They set an ambush for their own lives. Such are the ways of everyone who is greedy for unjust gain. It takes away the life of its possessors. Did, did you catch the pronouns? Sinners entice. They say, come with us, let us, we shall find, throw in with us. 
repeatedly, we see the enticement here, the chief temptation that would drive away our children from the source of wisdom and fear of the Lord is, in a word, belonging. As Ted Tripp puts it, the attraction of giving in to the wicked is camaraderie. Our our teens don't always know where they belong. They weren't a child, but just a minute ago. Now they're sort of adults, but not really. They're trying to find their place again to belong, but they don't know where that might be. I I remember the day, uh, and it doesn't seem like it was just a minute ago, our oldest came out of his room with an armful of his Lego creations in his hands. And he declared in that moment he was done with them. Poof. Just instantaneously, years and years of Lego building, Hours spent pouring over the latest Lego catalog, uh, watching shows and movies made by Lego, playing video games themed around Lego. All of it, gone, done. What it revealed in that moment was that he knew he was no longer a little boy. He didn't quite know what he was yet, but he knew he wasn't a kid, and the indicia of kidness around him bothered him. At the same time, he did indulge when his and I indulge with playing Legos when his little brothers still like to play with Legos. He'd continued to build his own creations, but they weren't his anymore. Of course, he was just doing it for you know the sake of other people. But now that man is more man than boy. Uh, he didn't get there automatically. It took an, a, an incredible amount of intentional parenting to guide him to that place where he belonged, helping him navigate relationships with others, with his brothers, with himself centering his belonging on the person of Christ and always keeping him within the orbit around the family to which he belongs. That, that takes a lot of effort in that. And your kids are going to go through something similar to that at some point in their lives. They'll, they'll not quite know where to fit. Do they belong in the boys' department or in the women? Or in, or in the, <laughs> That's a different discussion. Do they belong in the boys' department or in the men's department? Our, our duty as parents is to show them where they do belong Uh, more than where they do not belong. Our duty as parents is to show them where they do belong more than where they do not belong. Ted Tripp says it this way, the most powerful way to keep your children from being attracted to the offers of camaraderie from the wicked is to make home an attractive place to be. This again is why I spent a lot of time at the outset saying if we've done our work in shepherding the hearts of our children early on, if we've built into their lives the rhythm of life that revolves around the family, if we've spent the time early on doing that, as they age, they will then desire to spend more time with their family than with their friends. And we must not resist that. Uh, Certainly there's a place for them to spend time with their peers. I'm not saying that they have to be stuck inside the four walls of your home. I think it's right for our kids to have peer-to-peer relationships. But it is our responsibility to help them navigate those peer-to-peer relationships as well. But those should be little sojourns outside the safe walls of the citadel of the family. Always coming back into those four walls and defaulting back into those four walls as often as is humanly possible. So I would urge you, Early on and throughout, and if you haven't done it yet, do it now. Craft and cultivate for them a life where everyone in your family defaults around to, to being around the other person in the family. Prioritize that family life at the expense of almost everything else in life. Because in that relationship, they are the closest to what God says will place them on them, a graceful garland around their neck, and or, or on their heads, and a pendant around their neck. Keep them tight to the family. Orbit their lives around that. So here's an evaluative question for you. Here's something you can ask that you and your spouse sit down and think through this question 
about whether or not, uh, what, what, what are we getting at this year, right? Here's the evaluative question. What are the things that are making the camaraderie of the wicked more attractive to our kids than to our family? That's a tough question. And what it reveals can be very frightening. What are the things that are making the camaraderie of the wicked more attractive to our kids than to our family? Maybe there are parent priorities we have to re-examine and even give up. There could be career considerations that are getting in the way of making the family a priority and thus giving room to the camaraderie of the wicked. What relationships are of higher priority than the family and why? Uh, can we show our children the greater value of a family that God says to forsake not, or is that more muddy for us? What technologies are of higher priority than the family and why? Is a phone or a video game or a computer or TV, or however so beneficial any of those things might be, are they impeding on your daughter's ability to hear a father's instruction? Get rid of it. What activities are of higher priority than the family and why? Uh, are the things we do as beneficial as they are to mind and body, forcing our, child, uh, our children to forsake their mother's teaching? Weed it out. The, the world says to do and to go and to get and to ignore immature siblings along the way, and especially those old fogey parents or whatever kids are calling us these days, in favor of friends that are similarly situated. That's not what the scriptures say. The scriptures instead screamed at us as parents that these things lead away from the fear of the Lord. Oh, but Jeremy, our kids deserve friends and the experience of life. Assuming they do deserve that, and I'm not so sure that they do deserve that necessarily, but assuming that that's true, that they're entitled to the friends their age and the gadgets and experiences offered by the world, tell me the answer to this question. Is that of more worth than the wisdom and knowledge that is to be gained by the fear of the Lord? At what price are we willing to sell them to the camaraderie of the wicked? That's a tough question, guys, and I understand how how sore that can make us all. But do an honest reflection. Are there things that are more, that are making our lives, our children's temptation to be more attracted to the camaraderie of the wicked than to our family? And I would urge you to root those away. Those things will not yield to them a pendant around their neck. It will not put a graceful garland upon their head. It will lead to the other things in that scripture. It will lead to certain destruction and death and horrible things. Charles Spurgeon told us that if uh, the world be so determined to go to hell, let them do so by leaping over our bodies. This is no less the case for our kids as well. The teen years are critical moments to instill in our children, but almost adults, the fear of the Lord by encouraging them to adhere to the parent, their parents' instruction and disassociating from the wicked. And while that can seem daunting, you need to also understand the rich mercy that God has shown to your children by virtue of the fact that they are in your family. Here's what Ted Tripp says, and I think this is really important for us to remember as we close. God has already shown great mercy to your children. He has given them a place of rich privilege. He has placed them in a home where they have heard this truth. They have seen the transforming power of grace in the lives of his people. Your prayer and expectation is that the gospel will overcome their resistance as it has yours.
It's not ultimately our parenting that is so successful to raise kids. It is ultimately the transforming work of the Holy Spirit that has been given to us in the gospel of Jesus Christ that is at work in their hearts to change them from stone-dead humans to hearts beating alive in obedience to Christ. Our role during the teen years is to extend what we have already done, helping them now navigate the world around them as the faith they have been taught now becomes their own. We're removing the training wheels, so to speak, and steadying them as they pedal out on their own. So your job now is to shepherd them through the doubt that they're going to experience, the disagreement their changing bodies and minds will produce, and the ignorance that they don't know that they have by constantly and consistently over and over and over again, pointing them back to the thing that should be internalized by now, that wonderful gospel message that they can't, but that God can. They learn that from you. And that's what God designed to be the case. Let's pray. Thanks, Father, for today. And we are so grateful that we didn't come up with this parenting idea. Oh, it would have looked a whole lot different if we had. But instead, you have ordained certain things. You have ordained our kids to be our kids. You have called us to be parents. Help us to take that deeply seriously. And as we approach these teen years with a little bit of fear and understanding that these years of parenting are coming to a close, and that the, parent, that the kids we're going to parent have turned from this sweet little goopy mess to a different kind of goopy mess. God, we pray that we would see the beauty in those years. And I pray for each of these parents here that as they face parenting teenagers, that you would richly reward them for the faithful work that they've put in, that the teen years would be times of sweetness intermixed with terror, uh, that they would have more fun with their kids than they ever thought possible because that fun is rooted in a joint pursuit of the fear of the Lord as the beginning of wisdom and, and knowledge. Uh, may we teach our kids well. Would you help us also, Father, to be honest about the things that are getting in the way of the family life, of, of centering uh, where they uh, could hear their father's instruction and forsake not their mother's teaching. Uh, God, may we be very clear on what our duties are. And may we take them very seriously to the point of repentance if necessary. Help us to weed out those things that are getting in the way of the family life that creates the environment to, for, that we can, we can uh, instruct and provide that care and guidance and wisdom. So, Father, would you go before us even now to help us do those very things that are tough? Provide for us, Father, because we don't see it quite yet. Now, would you send us into your, our worship service with your blessing, that we would hear from your scriptures and apply it to our hearts today in a way that is both encouraging and challenging and that we can take from here and grow in wisdom and understanding ourselves. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen.